Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Welcome to another terrific instalment of Democracy Sausage Extra, and today we're focusing on the land that claims bangers and mash, or was it bubble and squeak, as part of its national cuisine. That's right, we're in London and talking to two of my favourite people there, Bevan Shields, who is the former Canberra Bureau Chief and now Europe Correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age newspapers. Howdy, Bevan. Hi, Mark. And back by popular demand, the perspicacious Elizabeth Ames, former Melbourneian, former diplomat, and now National Director of the Britain-Australia Society. Welcome back, Elizabeth. Hi, Mark. Great to be back again. Now, both of these Australians have been living a kind of twin-track existence, you might say, living through the calamitous failures of governance and policy in Britain and in Europe during this COVID crisis, while also keeping a very close eye on home, where the story's been noticeably less calamitous. Bevan Shields, let's start with you, because when I say living through COVID, that has a special resonance for you, doesn't it? Because around the time Boris Johnson was, his bravado was coming home to roost and he was almost, almost lost his life. He was, you know, battling for it in a London hospital. You were also desperately ill. Can you talk us through your own personal experience of that? Yeah, it wasn't a fun time, and I'm glad it's over, to be honest. Uh, I'd actually <laughs> started <laughs> started covering coronavirus when it first took hold in northern Italy, and I never really imagined – I mean, I knew there was a risk, but I never really imagined then that I could get it um, at some point, and I didn't get it from uh, Italy. I ended up getting it when I was well, well and truly back here in – London and I, I'd been working hard for a good good few months, really really hard. And I just woke up one day and felt absolutely exhausted, really drained. Um, my body was a bit sore, uh, so I asked for a couple of days off because I just thought I was I was tired, I was exhausted. Uh, and then gradually over the next few days, other symptoms developed. My neck and head felt like someone had really someone had trampled all over it. Um, uh, and my body felt like it had been hit by baseball bats, and then the telltale uh, fever and, and cough set in. And the fever, in particular, was was horrendous. I've never I've had the flu before, and never ever had anything like this. Uh, and the cough was unbelievably persistent, and ultimately it ended up affecting my breathing. And I actually hadn't realised how bad my breathing had become 
until I I got better uh, and I and I remembered what it felt like to not have to to struggle to breathe. And there was one night in particular where I got up uh, and was in the bathroom and had a shower and was just so exhausted by the whole thing, so struggling for air that I I slumped to the floor and was holding my chest and and couldn't breathe and was on the tiles for half an hour and had to had to climb back to bed literally on my hands and knees to get there so it wasn't very fun and I ended up having to call the ambulance Uh, that was the advice from the NHS Uh, they came and said look yes you're sick but your local hospital which actually happened to be the one that the Boris Johnson was in uh, they basically said it's very full uh, and we're not really sure what they might be able to do for you there Uh, so I decided to stay home and wrote it out and luckily got uh, got better. Yeah, that was the critical night, wasn't it, when you could have gone either way and they were sort of saying to you that if you went there, you, you might end up in a in a corridor and that unless you really need to go there, you might you might be better off staying where you are and sort of left it in your hands and you made that decision. I saw a, uh, a message from you around that time, I think it was on Twitter, uh, or it may have been a text message to some of your friends, um, of which I was one, um, uh, that really, I mean, I found it, very shocking because you were the first person I knew and cared for that was um, affected by it and uh, it, it it just sounded so worrying and then I didn't hear anything for a few days uh, and that was obviously the the worst part of it for you and mm. you, you live alone right in in um, yeah and that's in, that in made so me that it, it was a reminder to me that as a journalist, there's a there's a story behind each of these d- daily numbers that we see each day, not just the horrendous number of deaths, but the number of people who've actually got it. And it and it is true that the vast majority of people who get it have either mild conditions or they're asymptomatic. But there are a lot of people who in the UK who have had this, landed in hospital or had it, and tried to do the right thing and not increase the pressure on the public health system. And stay at home and write it out, and and not had an in, an enjoyable experience. And I think we will, when we look back at this over the next year or two, there's an increasing focus now on what not just the official toll, but what's termed the, the number of excess deaths, and that's the number of deaths that are being recorded uh, across the country at this time of year compared to the five year average for this time of year, and that shows that. There's possibly maybe you know fifty five thousand people who have died over and above what we would normally expect for this time of year, and that figure doesn't match up with the official death figure, which is about thirty five thousand. So there's something there's something going on. There are a lot more people suffering, I think, than than we than we realise. And uh, Elizabeth, as I understand it, the uh, the British government recently, as it's uh, sort of surpassed its um, those European countries, uh, Italy and France and others, um, it stopped uh, releasing the daily comparisons of numbers. Now, the argument, as I understand it, was that, uh, as Bevan's uh, implying there, there there's there's some of the the way these numbers are counted is is not necessarily consistent across countries, uh, and so the, the the British government was arguing, well, these these figures aren't necessarily comparing apples with apples all the time, so it's stopped providing them. But of course, it's also because its numbers are looking just so bad now. It's really what Britain's now number two in the world behind the US. Yeah, in terms of in terms of even sort of official deaths, Britain's number two. I think we're down to number four in terms of infections with the US and Russia and Brazil 
surpassing that. But of course, the infection number is notoriously unreliable because it really is reliant on how many tests you can do. And, and the British effort to test and then track and isolate has, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about this later, has been pretty woeful. Um, I think it is notable that they were providing the international numbers until they started looking bad and then they suddenly stopped. And so <laughs> it's it's a bit difficult, I think, to say, oh, we thought these numbers were not the best, but we thought they were an adequate comparison until the point at which they started looking bad for us. Um, I mean, there is a lot of there is a lot of discussion, as Bevan said, you know, the sort of excess deaths versus the official death toll is really striking. And you have places like Belgium that are effectively recording all of their excess deaths as COVID related, even if it's not a confirmed COVID case, which is why Belgium has such a high per capita rate. And then you have places that are only accepting it as a COVID death if the if the person is actually tested positive for COVID um, and doesn't have any other underlying symptoms. So the numbers are unreliable, but those ONS figures that Bevan talked about with 55,000 additional, and I think the Financial Times has been doing its own modelling and the FT modelling suggests it might even be up to about 65,000 excess deaths for this time of year, which given it's only sort of the middle of May is quite extraordinary, tells the story that this is not just about the people who've died from coronavirus or with coronavirus. It's also about this overwhelming effort to protect the NHS, which was, of course, the first part, you know, was part of that three original slogan. And Mm. in order to protect the NHS, they have really stopped treating anything other than coronavirus. So the number of people who have had heart attacks and strokes who haven't gone to hospital or who have delayed going to hospital and have died unnecessarily, I actually think there will be a huge um, a huge toll in that area as well when we go back and we have the inevitable inquiry. And it's hard to imagine the government would, uh, if, if the UK was doing unbelievably well here as well as Australia, for instance, it would be hard to imagine the government here saying, oh, no, we can't make any international comparisons. Like they would be shouting it from the rooftop how good we are compared to every other country. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like I think that's absolutely right. Um, the, the word you used a minute ago, Elizabeth, was toll, but it, it, you could have also said tail, I suppose, because we had Vanessa Johnston on the on the podcast a few days ago. She's the Deputy Chief uh, Health Officer in the ACT and uh, an Associate Professor at uh, ANU. And she was making the point that there's also a very great concern amongst health officials, health authorities, of um, the primary healthcare system just simply being underutilised, certainly in Australia. And I imagine this is the case in lots of places where people aren't going to see the doctor or people aren't attending hospitals for chronic or emerging health conditions because of COVID. Um, it may be because they perceive that the hospital is only interested in COVID, as you're saying, Um but also because people feel like they're, you know, they're burdening the health system or they might get COVID from going to see the doctor or whatever. And this could lead to a long tail of, of health conditions that worsen in ways that show up in higher mortality and, and morbidity rates into the future. Well, I think I think cancer referrals uh, to the NHS are down something like 90% year on year. So that gives you some indication of just how many people are staying away and not getting treated. And, you know, with cancer in particular, we know that early detection is key to survival. So there is a really legitimate worry here that this focus on on coronavirus and, you know, UK hospitals, despite the appalling figures, UK hospitals haven't been overwhelmed. We haven't seen, you know, people sitting outside them or people sitting in corridors. But that's because, as Bevan says, people have been discouraged from presenting unless they're really on 
death's door. Um, and so I, I agree entirely. I think there's going to be a huge second wave here, not of coronavirus, which of course is still a risk, but of people with conditions that weren't diagnosed and weren't treated in time. Now, Elizabeth, you, uh, when we first met, in fact, you were in, we were both in Europe at the time. Uh, you've uh, spent a lot of time there, lived and worked there. What were you thinking, um, if you can cast your mind back, um, being in London uh, in the early part of this year as Italy went past China as the, uh, the, the number one country for COVID infections and deaths? And there was a kind of insouciance in, in, um, in Britain about it. There was this, um, Heard immunity argument. Um, perhaps it wasn't being said as explicitly at that at that stage. Um, but what, what were you thinking about the way Britain was, um, I guess, failing to respond in those early weeks? It was it was pretty remarkable. You know, Mark, as you know, I lived lived and worked in Italy for three years, so I still read the Italian press and and have a lot of Italian friends on on social media, and the north of Italy where this started is the richest part of Italy. On some measures, it's richer per capita than Switzerland and and other parts of Europe we think of as incredibly developed. So that was a world-class health system that was being overwhelmed. And there was a lot, you know, I know there was an amazing article in English directed to the US that sort of said, I'm from Italy, this is your future, that got shared quite widely, but obviously wasn't making an impact at, at the top echelons. And I remember, I think we talked about this last time, you know, I was at that event, Bev, and I think you were there too for the fundraising for the bushfires for Prince mm. Charles. And and at that point, I really thought that event should not be going ahead from a health and safety perspective. I remember being really anxious about how many people there were in the room and, and needing to take the tube there, which was still packed. Um, and I thought, you know, it's time to lock down. And in fact, my partner and I, we ended up working from home a week before the official advice came in. So we just sort of self-isolated because we thought that the the government advice wasn't moving fast enough. And I think there are a lot of people in the UK who were fortunate enough to be able to do that, who did start isolating a lot earlier than the, the advice came through. Now, Bevan, you... Uh you landed in the UK in this in this new role that you now have um, as Europe correspondent. Uh, fairly quickly, you were into covering the British election, uh, which was, uh, as, as you said before, you know, in, once you in the lead up to you getting sick, you'd um, been working very very hard. So you did all of that, which would have been a lot of work. And then it wasn't long before you were covering this uh, this COVID crisis as it was unfolding. And I, I think I remember seeing you in. Um, in, in a report in Northern Italy somewhere, um, uh, maybe I read it uh, where you were talking about how even the kind of the, the they were partitioning off the area that they said was uh, you know an infection zone, and there were people who were just going round the the uh, the roadblock, going through the fields and so forth. Um, it must have been uh, pretty extraordinary to see this see this happening. And I suppose when you look back on it, um, as you say, the combination of how much work you were having to do and and um, the fact that this was all new and that authorities as well as the population needed to go through a psychological journey almost to understand how serious it all was. Well, Eve, I, I could, you could clearly tell in Northern Italy that a disaster was unfolding. You could absolutely tell that. And I was staggered when I was on the, the edge of the red zone where the police had set up roadblocks and, you know, like one day this kid, you could see him riding his bike up from right in the middle of the, the city that had been blocked off. He ride up the main street, right up to the roadblock, and just rode straight through, and the police didn't do a thing. Uh, and I 
I uh, I thought then I made the mistake then of assuming that Italy and and then the rest of Europe would not have the stomach to do to implement some of the measures that had been implemented in China to to basically lock down a whole area or a whole economy or a whole country and I was absolutely wrong about that that everyone has done it uh but you're, you're coming, not alone, though, because that was actually mm. behind, in a sense, the, the Britain's herd immunity approach, was it not? I mean, scientists, the medical advisors uh, around Boris Johnson had almost made that decision themselves that Britons, Britons wouldn't uh, put up with the kinds of social restrictions that had been placed on the Chinese and therefore they had to find another way. That was a big part of why the, the, the criticism of the UK's strategy has been that it is all too slow, too slow to get personal protective equipment, too slow to do anything on the borders, too slow to do a lockdown, too slow to do everything. But you're right, a lot of that was guided by advice from behavioural scientists who who effectively mm. said you need to introduce this at, the, at a time when it will have the most impact and probably delay it as long as possible because people will only wear this for so long. Now, I think those behavioural scientists got it absolutely wrong because all the polling here shows that actually the UK is one of the most pro-lockdown countries in the world. People aren't clamouring to be released from a lockdown. People are very cautious about what's happening. And in fact, people have complied with the lockdown to a much larger degree than the behavioural scientists had modelled. So that was a huge, that was another in a, in a series of big errors early on. I think it's interesting that in terms of that adherence to the policy and adherence to the rules, London actually, which is obviously the biggest and and the most crowded of all of the British cities, has probably the lowest rate of transmission. So lockdown has been even more effective in London, which you would think would be the hardest place to implement the policy, than it has been in other parts of the UK where people probably didn't feel quite as much at threat and didn't lock down as much. So there's some indication now that the R rate in London is significantly lower than the rest of the UK. So London is strangely now one of the safest places to be in the UK. Why do we think that is? Is that be? I mean, I imagine some people, as they have been right throughout this, have been you know would be drawing the war parallel, the um, the Blitz, uh, Londoners' uh, uh, willingness to uh, to take whatever measures are necessary against an external threat. Is that some of the kind of discussion that's happening? I wonder if part of it as well is, of course, London is one of the great service economy cities of the world. And so a lot of workers here, even ones that aren't very well paid because you know, UK pay scales are famously not fantastic, um, have the ability to do their jobs from home. So a lot of those service economy workers are actually been able to work from home in a way that mightn't be as possible in some of the other cities of the UK, which have still a manufacturing base or are more based on other economic production. Let's take a quick break and uh, when we come back, continue this discussion. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. 
Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. Now, let's look how is at how the government is actually going there. I mean, because looking from afar, it seems to me to be quite amateurish. There's, uh, as, as you were saying before the break, Bevan, there's been um, a reluctance or a slowness about some of the actions, but there's also a lot of mess around. You know, I noticed that... Um, I mean, not, notwithstanding, obviously, that uh, we've already mentioned that the Prime Minister uh, had COVID, but so did, you know, a, a significant number of people around him. We've learned recently that Mark said, will the, the, uh, the, the head of the civil service and the national security advisor also had COVID. There's, there's a call I've read recently uh, by a senior Tory for him to be stripped of some of his or to relinquish some of his responsibilities to focus on COVID. I think that probably reflects a sense that things aren't being managed or coordinated as well as uh, they could be. Um, how are people feeling about their government now? I, I, either one of you on that? It's still too early to tell because, as, as you know, Mark, you've written a lot of polling in your in your time. Uh, polling people at a time of crisis is, is slightly fraught, but it does give you some insight into what's going on, and it's not a it's not a pretty picture for the government at the moment. They were initially enjoying a big support. People were, were, were getting behind the strategy. They felt the strategy was right. They felt they were doing all the right things. But that those numbers have been falling quite significantly over the last few weeks. There's one poll from Ipsos here that uh, shows now that two-thirds of the country think that the government moved too slowly. Now, the, the interesting thing is it's not affecting yet the government's position. It's raw. It's raw you know, share of the vote. Uh, and Boris Johnson's personal approval rating is still reasonably okay. But but there is a there is a shift on. And my view is that that, that is not driven by people being out of work and, and being frustrated by the lockdown. My view is that more and more we're hearing about how the strategy has been just stuffed up really. Uh, and people are people are really questioning what they've done. That and what what I find most frustrating because I feel the government could possibly get out from from behind this and and start to 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 make some a bit more headway rather than being sort of constantly on the defensive mode is that they're very reluctant to concede any mistakes. Emmanuel Macron, the, pres- the French president, weeks ago was really blunt and said, "Yes, look, we've made massive, we've made errors here. We've got things wrong. We've absolutely got things wrong. It wasn't good enough." and here, it's it, it's impossible to get a minister to say we did something wrong. We didn't get that right. The closest they've gone is saying, "Look, we 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 needed more tests. We needed to do more testing." But even then, on something as as blatantly obvious as that, it's it's really hard work to get someone to actually say. We we stuffed that up. We should have we should have done better. We saw what was happening in Europe in places like Germany. We saw what was happening in Australia with widespread testing there, and we should have been doing that. I think we had the great line from Priti Patel, the Home uh, Office Minister, the Secretary of State, 
um, the other day where she said, I'm sorry if you feel that way, which is, of course, <laughs> well known, the classic non-apology. So, I mean, I think part of this, I'm sure, Bevan, you would agree, is because the government is very reluctant to admit mistakes when they know there's an inquiry coming and they want to keep their powder dry and not sort of hang themselves too early because they know that there will be this this big public inquiry which goes into who was told what, when, why were decisions made. But I think it's also, you know, Mark, last time we spoke, um, Sir Keir Starmer had only just won the Labour leadership election. We were all sort of wondering what he would be like. And I think a lot of this pressure on the government now is because we have a really functioning opposition in Westminster. And, you know, Sir Keir was a QC. His questioning has been really polite, but incredibly forensic. And he just steps up week after week uh, in Prime Minister's questions and asks a series of quite simple questions about why things have gone wrong and where they've gone wrong, not aggressive, not attacking, just asking for explanations. And it's been really evident, I think, to anyone watching those, and, and you certainly see this in the, in the media coverage, that the government hasn't had the answers. And it feels as though for some of those questions, you know, why was test track and trace abandoned in the middle of March, just as the, you know, the epidemic took off in the UK? The fact that they still don't have an answer to that question two months on doesn't look good either for Public Health England or for the government. Just on the media point that Elizabeth raises, which I think is a good one, and I don't like journalists criticising other journalists. It's not that. But coming from Australia and coming in cold here, I've really detected that I think the media here um, has some has some questions of its own to answer. They've not been asking the right questions. They've not been putting the right amount of pressure on the government. Uh, and when they do, it's often two or three weeks too slow. It was obvious It was obvious weeks and weeks and weeks ago that there was a train wreck occurring through care homes with this virus, just absolutely catastrophic number of deaths in care homes. But the media here has only picked up on it deaths. now, and it's unbelievably frustrating because it just feels as though – it feels as though – the government is getting a little bit of a leave pass. And maybe maybe that is warranted to some degree because this is such an unprecedented crisis and, and everyone is, is, they're trying to do their best. Obviously, they're trying to do their best. They're making mistakes, but they're trying to do their best. And I feel like there's possibly, you know, on the sort of sympathy sympathy scale, I think the, the media as a whole is is slightly too far on one side of that towards the government with with a few with a few notable notable exemptions like Piers Morgan who was who was a friend of Donald Trump and um not exactly a, a bleeding heart lefty who's just been absolutely mauling the government day after day on his on his breakfast uh, TV show uh stuff like that is now starting to cut through and I think that that is that is why the polling is also starting to shift yeah it's fascinating Elizabeth tell us uh, just for the sake of uh, Australian listeners in particular um uh, to this what is the state of lockdowns at the moment in in Britain uh, because uh, you know there, there's very much a sense of them releasing here you know allowing gatherings of 10 people in a, in a, in a house and so forth uh, they they do vary in 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 the way they're being released in different states and so forth but uh, nonetheless that's the way things are going what's the situation there in the UK we are of course all staying incredibly alert which is our new uh, our new motto <laughs> yes. 
Um, I, I mean, I know a lot of Australians in the UK have been looking longingly at, at Facebook photos and, and talking to friends back in Australia who are able to see their parents, able to see their families and their friends. That's still not the case in the UK. I think, you know, you've talked about in the podcast and we've talked about the fact that sometimes the the messaging and the policies are to to try and get a general idea across rather than because of the specifics. But the messaging here has been very confused. So, for example, you can see one person from another household outdoors at a distance of two metres, but not two people, even if they live in the same house, which resulted in the wonderful um, radio interview where they clarified you could see your father in a park for half an hour and he could leave and then your mother could come to the same park and you could sit with her separately, but you couldn't see both of your parents outside at the same time. Um, And they've also now, which I think is the right move, you know, we've talked about the pressures, particularly on women of of this crisis, that more women are out of work, more women have lost hours, they're having to take up more of the slack around homeschooling children and, and keeping houses running. So the UK government have said that home workers, nannies, cleaners and the like, are now allowed to come back. But that's resulted in the really legitimate question here, which is, you know, well, if my nanny can come and see my children, why can't my sister or why can't my, you know, father come and help out a couple of days a week? So there is a lot of confusion here over messaging. And it feels to a lot of people, I think, unfair that paid staff can come back and and help out in people's houses, whereas family and friends are still not allowed to. And that must be causing all kinds of all kinds of anxieties and pressure. So I'm interested uh, in uh, you said before, Bevan, that you don't sense there is a, a real clamour for an early release of these um, restrictions. I guess there, there, that's not absolute in in all cases, but um, people are putting up with these things. So far, they are, and we've all got, sort of got our, ourselves worked up about the mixed messaging, and the and the messaging is. Mix and you can. You, Elizabeth points out some some quite good and sort of almost comical examples of, of of the mixed messaging there. But at some point also, you kind of have to go look. You can't have a guidebook for every single hypothetical scenario. Ultimately, ultimately, this is going to have to come down to to public sort of common sense a little bit. And I think they're kind of leaning. I think Downing Street and the government is a, a kind of leaning on that. Quite heavily at the moment, that even though it's a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit mixed, and you know you could poke, poke holes through it, that on the whole people are still behind this lockdown, and 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 they'll comply still. This messaging focus has been very strong, hasn't it? Uh, the criticism of uh, the change language and how all of these restrictions are being communicated. I guess how they can, how how the authorities can direct and influence social behaviour. As the rules themselves become less uh, less prescriptive, it it's actually caused some interestingly some real tensions across the UK in terms of its federal structure. So, you know, we tend to think of the UK as a, in in Australia as a sort of single entity, but of course it is for constituent nations, although they don't have anywhere near the devolved power that Australian states do. But this is the first time I think I've seen a real difference emerging between the governments. So you had the Prime Minister come out here, Boris Johnson come out and and announce the new messaging. And almost simultaneously, you had the governments of Wales and Northern Ireland and Scotland say, no, we don't accept that messaging. We want you all to still stay home. We don't think it's time to start relaxing the restrictions. And so one of the- Talk us through what that messaging is, though, if you don't mind, like just so that uh, people can understand, you know, this what this stay alert message is, which has got a lot of criticism. 
Yeah, so it, originally it was stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. And I think, you know, stay at home and, and protect the NHS both happened. Saving lives possibly hasn't been achieved. And and the new one is, um, I think it is sort of stay alert, protect the NHS, and possibly still save lives. It's I mean, it's much less memorable than the previous messaging. And you have these loosening of restrictions at the same time as you have the devolved nation saying, we haven't reached the peak of our infections yet. It's not the right time for this. So the fact that messaging has actually led to probably the biggest crisis of UK federalism uh, since Tony Blair introduced it, I think is a really interesting reflection on how important political messaging is in this crisis. Also, to me, it's highlighted the just how fortunate Australia has been, possibly through the national cabinet system, to to avoid all of this. That yes, there's been some that some of the states in Australia have moved differently, and there's been a bit of tension on national cabinet. But it's to me, it seems nothing like the kind of tension and uh, different messaging that leaders here in the UK are, are putting out. Yes, it's really interesting. I mean, there was a lot of criticism of Scott Morrison's messaging and and to some extent some of the state governments, their messaging earlier on in this uh, process. But, you know, perhaps that was the right place to have concerns about the messaging, people trying to understand what it was they were allowed to do and not allowed to do and why as the restrictions came on. But I think as Australians watched what was happening in the rest of the world and we could see how our system of uh, our changes had were, were paying dividends in, saying like saving lives, flattening that curve, keeping the demand off the system and so forth, I think there was a fair amount of social buy-in. But I think what we're finding now, and this is very much what both of you were saying as well, is that the path out is perhaps the the hard part mm. you know it's the it's it's going to be quite difficult to and this is obviously where they came up with stay alert um because it, you know you don't have to think too hard about it to realize what they're trying to say there is just because we start releasing restrictions doesn't mean the crisis is over what it means is we're in a different stage of it and we still need you to behave as if it is a a clear and present danger and that is going to be quite hard here as well as in the UK and everywhere else to keep people focused on that danger i mean i was talking to my son in um uh, in, in, he's in Melbourne the other day, and he was saying that on Saturday, uh, in in the in the part of Melbourne where he lives, it almost had a festival atmosphere on Saturday. It was a nice day, you know, sun was shining, and people were greeting each other on the street. In some cases, you know, hugging each other and so forth. And you know, it's almost like you know, we're, we're restrictions are coming off. It's over. Uh, so it's going to be quite hard, quite a challenge, yeah. I think. Yeah. To, uh, you know. Applying rules is one thing, but applying recommendations on behaviour, mm, very hard. And the second, the, to me, the second wave is the next big element of this story. Whether whether one materialises or not, it's 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 a big deal either way because it's going to not just have health ramifications, but that that potentially, if a second wave does materialise, it will it will make the economic pain so much worse. The, the government is right here in pointing out that the worst thing that could happen is that we ease these restrictions, we get a second wave, and all the businesses that have reopened and rehired staff, uh, restocked their businesses, then have to, to close again. So I'm starting to look quite closely at the, the, the second wave issue because that, that to me, is also going to, to whatever happens here is going to send a big signal to Australia as well about 
the risk that it, it is at from a second wave in it, when it's it's gradually taking away these restrictions. And we've seen some of the pictures. I, I, I cringed the last few days when I've seen pictures from Milan and other, par- other parts of Italy, Venice, where the streets are very, very, very busy again. And I just... I just, I just worry. We have to see. I mean, we have to see what what works out. There's been some countries where there hasn't been a second wave, but uh, I, I'm, I'm deeply worried about it. Yes, well, that is uh, going to be quite fascinating. Um, how, how do you think Europe is going generally? You were just talking about seeing, uh, you know, people back on the streets in in Italy in particular. But um, there's there's been some interesting development developments you've reported on Bevan in Europe with uh, the establishment of this. Um, Corona fund, or what is it, Corona bonds, or, or some such thing, where they're going to establish, you know, borrow a huge amount of money, and then essentially apportion that to member states, and it won't appear on the negative side of their budget um, uh, to to help states uh, deal with the economic crisis. Yeah, Tell look, us about that. Yeah, essentially the problem is that some of the the countries that have been hardest hit by coronavirus are also the countries that are still you know, debt up to their eyeballs from the global financial crisis. Uh, so they need to borrow a huge amount of money to to recover, to rebuild, uh, but the borrowing costs are going to be absolutely huge. So the idea is if we can can use the, the might, the borrowing power of the EU as an institution as a whole uh, or the balance sheets of all the other member countries that are less uh, in debt, that will lower borrowing costs. Now, that's a hugely controversial idea because countries in the north, like the Netherlands, uh, and up until up until the last couple of days, Germany have been opposed to that. They don't want to be on the hook for, you know, the, the spending of the south. Uh, this has created, a, again, more tension inside the EU that's been, that's been there for 10 years. Uh, and the, the concern is that, not just that, a country like Italy might become very skeptical of the Europe project or the or the euro and might want to want to crash out of it in the in a way the UK has but if a country like Italy which is the fourth largest economy in Europe was to was to effectively go bankrupt that would make what happened with Greece in 2010 or 11 uh, look like a picnic Really, so the stakes are, the stakes are really high here at the moment. So Emmanuel Macron and Angela Merkel of uh, Angela Merkel have got together and decided that the best option is to borrow 500 billion euros uh, and to do it through the EU, but do it in a way that means that the debt isn't isn't distributed to them on the onto the balance sheets of the member states. It just sits on the EU's books and is eventually repaid and and that that may get through but even even 500 billion is an astronomical amount of money but given some of the projections about where the economy is going to go over the next two years in some of these countries it 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 they will need they will need more and on top of all of that of course you have the the looming threat of brexit so the uk has officially left the european union but we're in this standstill agreement until the end of this year and all indications from uh, certainly the UK side are that they intend to leave the European Union fully on the 31st of December. And that was a tight deadline before coronavirus. And, and since they haven't been able to have the negotiating rounds that they need to have, that is now an almost impossible uh, deadline in terms of getting a really high quality deal that would see free movement of, of goods. And we know free movement of people will end. So 
on top of the sort of the economic uncertainty around the recovery from from coronavirus, both here and in the European Union, you then add Brexit and it becomes a sort of an unholy mess of, of uh, threats. Also a reasonably convenient cluster of, of mess for the UK because even maybe in the best of circumstances, even without coronavirus, a year to stitch up a new trading relationship with the EU was an incredibly tough ask. So uh, I suspect maybe Downing Street's not particularly concerned that this might not happen this year because they will be able to use the uh, use this broader economic crisis in Europe as cover for the damage that would would result from a from a no deal effectively a no deal brexit with the EU by the end of the year look it's been a really terrific discussion before i go i'd like to ask both of you just what reactions you're getting from ordinary Britons as you move around. I know when I was in New York in January when the bushfires were raging here, that as soon as people heard, you know, New Yorkers heard my accent, they would ask me about the bushfires and comment on it because it was such a huge story. When people hear your accents, do they uh, do they mention Australia? Because mu- people must be looking presumably at Australia and thinking, and New Zealand and thinking, well, they've done a fairly good job of of dealing with this crisis compared to the way we've done it. Are you picking up Tell me what you're picking up from people as you come across them. I've found certainly, so not only have they been impressed with the way Australia closed its borders early, which of course still hasn't happened in the UK, they're talking only now about introducing a quarantine. The other aspect, which is for for another podcast. Which is extraordinary, sorry, Elizabeth, that, that seems extraordinary to us here, that they're talking about it now. Yes, and you know state. there are these figures of something like twenty-three million arrivals, and sort of only you know two hundred and ninety of them were quarantined in March. Something they're just absolutely astronomical figures of arrivals and and lack of quarantine, even at the height of the crisis in in Italy. So that has has come under a lot of criticism, and and Australia and New Zealand have really been seen as leading the world in that. But the other aspect people are interested in is Australia's relationship with China. So. There has been a lot of interest from people I've spoken to here in in politics and policy about how Australia is balancing its China relationship or not balancing its China relationship right now and the implications of that for the UK going forward, particularly with trade post-Brexit. So that's one to keep an eye on. Yeah, I think Elizabeth has summed it up very, uh, very well. I I think a lot of people are envious, a lot of people are jealous, uh, a lot of people are confused about how Australia has managed to do it. Uh, I was on the roof of my building yesterday and I uh, was chatting to a couple and uh, one of them one of them said, Australia feels like another planet at the moment. And I thought that pretty well summed it up. Yes. Well, it does uh, sum it up in some ways. But um, as uh, uh, an epidemiologist said to me the other day, um, uh, you know, she said, I'm, I'm quite, an expat living in, in the US said, I'm quite worried about Australia also because Yes, uh, we've achieved, uh, you know, got close to uh, sort of functional elimination. We haven't got rid of it, of course, but we've, you know, suppressed it to a very low level, as has New Zealand. But we have our borders shut, you know, so we're not really functioning as a member of the international community at the moment. And at some point, we will try to do so. And that goes back to that question we were talking about before, you know, what sort of social restrictions do you have in place? How well observed are they? What are your protocols? How well how well prepared is your health system? I guess we can use this time to try and get ahead of some of those things so that when we are more open, we can deal with them. But yes, it's going to be a, a big challenge until there is a vaccine or a very 
convincing you know therapy which minimizes the mortality rate of this virus we are living with it and mark something just to point out very briefly is that for your for your listeners is don't make the assumption that because of how many deaths we've had here and how terrible it's been here in Italy and Spain and France and other countries that doesn't mean that the population as a whole is is it has been largely infected and the number of people who could be affected by a second wave is much smaller a lot of studies are coming out now showing that maybe only 5 Four or five percent of the British population has actually had this. Maybe ten percent in London. Uh, maybe a higher number in Italy, but it's nowhere near what would be needed uh, to achieve. And I don't want to get into this because it's a controversial topic. But to achieve herd immunity, you would need maybe seventy percent of the population to. Uh, there goes Vincent. Seventy percent of the population <laughs> to uh, to have been infected and have antibodies to have any real effect so we've really had the worst possible scenario here where we've had a terrible health crisis we've had an economic crisis but there's really no ultimate benefit at the end of all of that in 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 having the majority of the population having had this and recovered Yes, well, I'm very sorry about uh, Vincent barking there. Someone's gone past, and uh, that's that's working from home for you. You know, we've had sirens outside Elizabeth's place, and a uh, an excited dog dog inside mine. Let's wrap it up there. It's been absolutely terrific talking to both of you, getting the perspective of what life is like there in London and uh, what's happening in Europe. Um, really have appreciated your time. So, uh, Bevan Shields and Elizabeth Ames, uh, thanks for being with us on Democracy Sausage. Thank you. Thanks. Bye, Bevan. Bye, Mark. Bye, Vincent. <laughs> and we'll look forward to talking to you again uh, very soon. Thank you. Bye for now. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.